0: Hey everyone, so today's episode is a rebroadcast of a 2016 conversation I had with genocide activist and scholar Greg Stanton. He's probably best known for creating a heuristic for understanding how genocides can occur. It's called the Ten Stages of Genocide. And in this episode, we start with a discussion of the most recent genocide at the time, the Yazidi genocide, before having a longer and actually pretty emotional conversation about his life and career. As regular listeners know, I don't often do rebroadcasts, but I'm publishing this episode today for a few reasons. First, three years later, I still think about this conversation. It was powerful. It is also a good example of the kinds of episodes that are being made available to premium subscribers, so if after listening you appreciated this and want to hear more of these kinds of episodes in which interesting people talk about their life and career in foreign policy and world affairs, I would strongly encourage you to get a premium subscription. You can do so by going to patreon.com slash global dispatches or following the links on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Along with these bonus episodes, you can also get access to my news clip service I run called Dawn's Digest. This is a service that some major global humanitarian organizations subscribe to on behalf of their staff, and I would be glad to give you, premium subscribers, access to this service. It's a daily email that arrives in your inbox early in the morning, and browsing through these handpicked news clips from parts of the world that don't often get much attention is a great way to start your day well-informed. Another reason for doing a rebroadcast today is that it's a holiday here in the U.S., and I am gearing up for the most intense and interesting week of the year, which is the United Nations General Assembly. September is always a busy month for me with UN Week, and I have lots and lots of great content planned for you. So please do stay tuned for that later in the month of September, and do drop me a line if you're going to be around the U.N. and related events in New York. I would love to say hi. And now here is my conversation with Greg Stanton, published first in August of 2016. I have a powerful episode today. My guest, Greg Stanton, has spent a career researching and fighting genocide. He speaks candidly about the psychological toll of this line of work in managing the PTSD which he confronts to this day. Stanton is a descendant of Elizabeth Cady Stanton, the famous suffragette. And as you'll learn from this conversation, the human rights gene runs strong in his family. His father was a liberal preacher and civil rights activist. And Greg tells me the most dangerous place he's ever worked to this day was registering black voters in Mississippi in the 1960s.
1: Even though there were machine gun battles down below our hotel in Cambodia, they weren't as much of a threat. Uh, We weren't being followed around by people who want to shoot at us.
0: Greg is the founder of the NGO Genocide Watch, and his career as a genocide scholar and activist began in the 1980s as a humanitarian worker in Cambodia, and he recounts collecting evidence of war crimes committed by the Khmer Rouge. Greg served for many years in the State Department as well, including in Rwanda to help establish the War Crimes Tribunal following the 1994 genocide there. And we kick off discussing the ongoing genocide against the Yazidi people in Iraq and Syria. Now, obviously, the subject matter of this episode is pretty heavy. And I just want to thank Greg for being so open and honest about the emotional challenges that he's faced throughout his career. And now here is my conversation with Greg Stanton. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting season four, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube.
1: Well, the Yazidis uh, are a particular religious group that lives in, near Lalish and uh up near uh a very prominent mountain towards the western side of Iraq Sinjar uh, it's Mart- called right Mart- Mount Sinjar that's correct and um they are considered heretics by ISIS by the uh Islamic state because they do not profess Sunni Islam according to the tenets of ISIS they in fact um have a religion that is ancient. It's based on a combination of Zoroastrian and other beliefs of that region. It's a people of 500,000 who live there and have been there for a long time. The um, ISIS uh, invasion of western Iraq swept through Mosul and Sinjar and that whole area uh, with vengeance. The Sunni Muslims were Simply taken under, you know, control of the ISIS. Yeah, like their
0: ostensible protection, right?
1: Yes, uh, that's what they said. Uh, Actually, they imposed a uh, absolute tyranny over them. Um, But uh, the Shia Muslims, on the other hand, were slaughtered when the uh, ISIS people uh, got to, for instance, the air bases in Mosul and in other places in Iraq. Uh, They divided the Sunnis from the Shia Muslims and simply killed all the Shia because they consider Shia uh, to be uh, heretics, according to their views. Well, the Yazidis are outside of the bounds of even Islam and even uh the people of the book so so you're saying that that you know at least uh you know
0: Christians and Shia and uh Jews are considered people of the book in the Abrahamic tradition
1: actually not the Shia okay. the problem the problem with the Shia is that they are considered heretics even though they're Muslims ah, okay so so they are to be slaughtered uh by the ISIS forces but the Yazidis are in a category of their own you're saying the, yes the Yazidis are completely outside the pale I mean, they're um, just considered uh, devil worshippers, according to ISIS, uh, which is a misrepresentation uh, of their faith. When they were invaded uh, around uh, Mount Sinjar and in the uh, town at the base of Mount Sinjar, which is called Sinjar, they were, the, all the men were just simply taken away and slaughtered. And the women were captured and then taken away as sex slaves by ISIS. Uh, many of them taken uh, to uh, Raqqa and other parts of uh, the ISIS territories and they are literally sold from one uh, ISIS uh, fighter to another. Uh, many places they're put into rape camps uh, and simply raped night after night. Uh, so and, and it's the, worth
0: noting that, according to UN estimates, we're talking about several thousand uh, women and girls that, that are in right. that are in uh, this form of sex slavery.
1: Yes, at least two thousand five hundred, probably more. And we know of at least three thousand men who were slaughtered, uh, you know, just in August of uh, two thousand and fourteen. And since then, there probably have been others. So it's a it, it is genocide in its classic sense because these people have been singled out because of their religious group, uh, for the destruction of that group. And the uh, ISIS have declared that they intend to destroy every single uh, Yazidi person that they can get their hands on. Uh, The Yazidis actually fought back, and so uh, with eventually the help of uh, the Kurdish forces, the Peshmerga, uh, who had initially left them, abandoned them. The Kurdish Peshmerga forces, though, came back in and with the Yazidis and recaptured the area uh, at the base of Mount Sinjar. But ISIS still controls uh, the other side, and they still control Mosul. Uh, they still control a lot of that area.
0: Mm-hmm. So how is this uh, genocide against the Yazidi um, similar or different to other historic genocides? Is there anything that we can learn from other historic genocides that might explain what, um, will happen next with the Yazidis?
1: Probably the genocide that is most like the genocide against the Yazidis was, uh, the Holocaust against the Jews, uh, because there, uh, people were singled out because of their religious and ethnic, uh, identity, uh, and, uh, Simply, uh, a uh, command was given that all of them were to be killed. Uh, In the case of the Yazidis, they are attempting to use all the women as sex slaves first, but the ultimate objective is to wipe out the entire group. Uh, So, it's very similar to the Holocaust.
0: Um in terms of accountability for uh this this uh crime, I know there is some movement to get the situation before the International Criminal Court, but that will likely require a Security Council resolution uh to, to happen. What uh do you see as being sort of the the end game here of, of this genocide?
1: Well I think that if the Security Council were to refer this case to the International Criminal Court, it would be a very good thing, but it would still only be able to try some of the top leaders of uh, ISIS if they can even be captured. Um, so I think the end game is going to be that a lot of the ISIS fighters who have uh, been captured in they're already being captured there are well over six hundred uh, currently uh, being held uh, in Kurdistan, for example. Those people are going to have to be tried either by some kind of a uh, mixed tribunal, uh, this combination of international and uh, local uh, Iraqi or Syrian judges who could in fact put them on trial. In fact, my own uh, advice is to try to create some kind of regional tribunal uh, that would cover uh, the whole Middle East. Uh, but. The other place that they could be tried would be in um, Iraq or in Syria, in the courts there. So the International Criminal Court referral is a good idea, I think. It's likely to be blocked by Russia at this point because Russia doesn't want to have any more referrals mm-hmm. uh, to the International Criminal Court since the ICC began to investigate its con- Russia's conduct in Georgia.
0: Um. It seems, though, in the meantime, uh, the only thing that will stop this genocide against the Yazidis is to, uh, you know, is, is to take back territory currently controlled by ISIS in which Yazidis live.
1: That's right. I mean, before you can put people on trial, obviously you have to yeah. capture them. And and the only way you're going to capture them is to defeat them militarily. So the, the, the military defeat of ISIS is crucial. Um, I would love to
0: to switch gears and learn more uh, about you and and your background. Um, mm-hmm. So I take it uh, that you are a descendant of Elizabeth Katie Stanton. Is that right?
1: Well, uh, she is certainly in our family tree. I where, never, what's your
0: uh, relation?
1: I've never been quite clear about how where we're related, but I do know there is a common ancestor back there, oh. and I and I also know that she uh, was born in the town. Uh, right next to where my great grandfather came from and that uh, her portrait was over his mantle. So I think there must be some connection here. Uh, they wouldn't have had that portrait up there if there weren't.
0: Ah, okay. You don't know if it was like a cousin or if it was uh not, yeah, the, not that, sure. That's that's where it blurs, but yeah. there is
1: a connection. There's a connection. And I do know that we are also related to uh, Henry Brewster Stanton, who was her husband. Uh, He was an ardent abolitionist uh, who actually uh, was a descendant of Brewster of the Mayflower. So uh, we go back a long ways uh, in both cases to England.
0: Uh, Well, I grew up not far from Brewster, New York. (laughs) There you go. So named. Um, So uh, where did you grow up then?
1: I grew up in uh, northern Illinois in a town called Streeter. Uh, about 90 miles southwest of Chicago, a farming and industrial community.
0: Uh, And what did your your parents do?
1: My father was a Presbyterian pastor, and my mother was an English teacher.
0: Uh, And and were sort of politics routinely discussed? What kind of uh, pastor was he? Was he sort of a fire and brimstone sort of person, or was he?
1: Uh, uh, No, he was certainly not a fire and brimstone sort of person. He was very much uh, uh, a social activist preacher. But he was also a very good preacher and a very good pastor. He believed in, he believed if you didn't love your congregation, if you didn't go out and, and call on them at least 20 hours a week, you wouldn't really know what their needs were. So you wouldn't be able to give sermons that were relevant to them. So he was actually a very effective preacher as well as a uh, social activist uh-huh. in the town.
0: And so, how did his social activism manifest itself? Because this was what probably in the the nineteen fifties, nineteen sixties, I imagine.
1: That's right. Uh, well, I, just an example: uh, when he came to Streeter, uh, he was a very effective fundraiser. Um, his view was that uh, you know raising money was a way to give people a useful way to use their their money, and so it, it was really a gift to them to. You know, raise money from them, but his—he was asked to raise money when they wanted to build a swimming pool for the town. Well, everybody in that town used to gather. The top people in that town, the men, used to gather at a at a at Walter Dumelli's barber shop. Walter Dumelli was a uh, Italian uh, barber who uh, was a closet liberal, and uh, he listened to the conversation and learned that they were intending to have a segregated swimming pool. In other words, not allow any so-called Negroes to go into the swimming pool. Uh, And Walter uh, told my father this, because my father uh, went to that barbershop. And so my father uh, happened to have the main contractor in town in the church, Uh, a man named Cephas Williams. And he went out and had a talk with Cephas. And he said, you know, if they're going to have a segregated swimming pool, I'm not only not going to raise the money for it, but I'm going to denounce the pool from the pulpit. Well, that was all it really took. Um, He uh, got an integrated swimming pool and it was all very quiet and no demonstrations were needed. But as he used to say, uh, if you could connect somebody's conscience with their pocketbook, you really had a grip on them. <laughs> and how old were you when, when this was going down? This was uh, when I was about seven or eight years old. So were you, he,
0: were, you, were you pretty aware of, of what was oh, going on and like the controversy surrounding it?
1: Well, you know, we used to talk at the dinner table. Uh, he let us know what he was doing. He, he believed strongly in having dinner with us every night. And uh, we talked about things uh, at our dinner table. Issues were discussed all the way through my youth, uh, all kinds of the current issues of the day.
0: Did, was there any like blowback in, in this? I have to imagine it's like a, a majority white town in, in the ni- early 1960s. Was there any sort of blowback for you and, and your family for this, this kind of outspoken, you know, you know, liberalism?
1: Well, um, uh, there was some, a little bit, um, uh, we got a uh, brick through our window uh, one one day when after he'd given a sermon uh, denouncing Joseph McCarthy's, uh, you know, politics of character assassination. Um, I will remember that <laughs> it was also when I was quite young. But, and I, I'll tell you the time when I most felt it was when I was in high school. I had a, uh, a combo, I played the bass and we used to play for all kinds of you know events and we were playing for an ice cream social at the church. Uh, and I uh, had asked a girl in our class who was the secretary of our class, a really outstanding girl, uh, to whether she might want to go to a movie with me. Well, she happened to be uh, you know, a black girl. Uh, I'd known her since third grade. I didn't think a thing of it. Uh, she thought about it, and she decided it really wasn't such a good idea. I hadn't told anybody about this. As far as I knew, she hadn't either. But during that ice cream social when I was playing the bass that summer, a lady in our church came up to me, and she said, I heard that you had invited Glenda Powell out for a date. And I said, well, maybe, but we didn't actually go out for the date, and she said to me greg i'm ashamed of you and I for once had the right answer i said, Well mrs. Lipke i'm ashamed of you uh-huh.
0: um so so these experiences really seem to to be formative in in your own sort of development of of your worldview um, how did you um sort of take these with you in in university and how did you get involved in in international issues i mean at at the time you know i you know can tell from your family lineage from from your father that you obviously must have been pretty deeply involved in the social causes of the day in the, the 1960s and, and 70s how did this um how did your commitment to these kinds of this kind of social activism uh become translated on a, a global scale and and start to look abroad
1: well um the 60s were were a wonderful time to go to college because it was a time of great change and reform in the world and a time of great activism. So I was very involved in the civil rights movement. Uh, I went down to Mississippi as a voting rights worker in 1966 after the 65 Voting Rights Act had been passed to uh, help uh, people register to vote. We got followed around by Ku Klux Klan. In fact, one night uh, they shot into a house where uh, some of my friends were staying and wounded them. Uh, I still think it's the most dangerous place I've ever worked. Uh,
0: Mississippi in the 1960s. In, in 1966 in Leak
1: County, Mississippi yes. Yeah,
0: More than Cambodia in the 1970s and 80s. By far.
1: Even though there were machine gun battles down below our hotel in Cambodia they weren't as much of a threat. <laughs> uh, we weren't being followed around by people who wanted to shoot at us. Uh, they the Other, of course, big movement at that time was the uh, anti-war movement. I was very involved in the anti-war movement at that time. I didn't think that the Vietnam War uh, was moral, and I thought it was also illegal, for that matter. Uh, And I didn't really feel that we should be taking the place of the French in Cambodia. Uh, You know, and we'd really gotten sucked into a terrible colonialist-type war. I also, though, realized that the communists who wanted to take over uh, both Vietnam and Cambodia were not necessarily going to be a good force. And I especially found that true later when I was asked to go to Cambodia uh, in 1980 by Church World Service to set up the relief program after the Khmer Rouge had been overthrown.
0: and and your relationship with, with the, the religion and, and church, um, was, was still strong from, uh, I suppose your, your father's, uh, you know, heritage and, and, and your father's
1: preaching. Well, it was, it was, I grew up in the church. I also have had a very, I'd say strong, uh, personal faith. Um, I, you know, I'm a, a Christian, uh, uh, not ashamed to say so. I. Uh, I have felt the presence of God in my life and I pray about all the important decisions in my life. Now I don't, you know, hear voices or see burning bushes or anything like that, but I certainly know what the inspiration of God is, uh, when I pray. So, uh, when Church World Service called me to go to Cambodia, I first said, well, I don't really want to do this because I'm, you know, 34 years old and in law school and it's time for me to finish. Uh, And they found another person to go for six weeks and that person burned out and they came back and asked me. And that time I made the mistake of saying that I'd pray about it. Well, I did. And I had no question after that that I should go. I went around and talked to some of my uh, law professors about it. Uh, some of them said, oh, you shouldn't go. It's too dangerous, you know. Uh, but others, uh, especially uh, my labor teacher, uh, Jack Kepman, who was Jewish, said, you don't have any choice. You've been called. Hmm. And that was exactly right. What I didn't know was what I'd been called for. I thought I was going to go over and distribute rice seed, you know, and give out uh, relief aid and all that. But I and that I did do, of course. We we did, I should say. Our whole team did because we built a team out there that included people, uh, by the way, from Cuba, from East Germany, from Poland. I mean, we didn't care about the the uh, the Cold War. We we simply took people that we needed and that the Cambodian government would accept.
0: So can can I ask um, a couple questions? One, uh, can you describe? Uh, What is Church World Relief? Um, What was the situation in Cambodia that that sort of required um, that aid? And and why did they call you, of all people?
1: Well, um, the – excuse me. Church World Service is the uh, relief arm of the National Council of Churches uh, in, in, in the United States. And they had formed a coalition with CARE and with Lutheran Rural Relief and with a number of other uh, American organizations to send relief into Cambodia in 1980, which was right after the Khmer Rouge had been overthrown by a Vietnamese and uh, dissident Cambodian-led army that defeated the Khmer Rouge and drove them into thailand basically uh and uh, this was a period when the country they invaded at the time of a harvest so the country was had no food they they missed that whole harvest and the country was just full of mass graves everywhere the khmer rouge had killed two million people out of the eight million people in cambodia and everywhere you went there were mass graves being opened up Uh, you know, my wife and I were among the first to see some of these mass graves. It was a country that was on its back. It was completely destroyed. And it was a country that needed every bit of relief that we could bring. But what I also saw as a lawyer was this was a country that was a victim of genocide. And they not only had committed genocide, they committed every other a crime against humanity so seeing it that way i said we need to put these people on trial for what they've done can
0: can you um describe some of the, the the crimes that you saw so you said earlier that you and your wife were probably the first people to see some of these mass graves what was that first mass grave that you saw how did you come to it
1: well i remember vividly uh when chung Ek which is a huge mass grave outside of Phnom Penh, uh, was first opened. Um, that was the grave in which, uh, many of the victims from the tool slang extermination prison in Phnom Penh were buried. Over 7,000 were there. They had 100, uh, over 100 pits of, you know, bodies with bones and skulls and so forth. And, uh, mass graves are terrible places because they, uh, where you have that many bodies, not all of the uh, uh, of the uh, process of uh, disintegration is complete, and you know there's still flesh on bones and things like that. We saw skeletons of little children with you know Mickey Mouse t-shirts on them and i and I saw I said, "How could anybody be so monstrous as to murder this little child?" And I, there were people that you know, had been bound with barbed wire behind their backs. Uh, The bones were still uh, bound together. So what we saw all over Cambodia was the evidence of genocide. And um, we also heard the the stories of survivors. Every single person you talked to, had a story to tell and wanted to tell you about the members of his or her family that had been murdered.
0: Is there one story that, that still resonates and, and sticks out to you to this day?
1: Oh, well, there are just so many stories. And I, you know, there's some that I will absolutely never be able to forget. I mean, I know one woman, for example, uh, named Sopidas, who was a, a grandmother. And She told me about how her husband, who was a leader in the Cham community, which is a Muslim community, was singled out because he was a leader, soaked with gasoline, and then he was set on fire. And at the same time, they took their grandchild and dashed her brains out against a tree. And, I I mean, another one I remember was a woman named Guy Marianne who was – she was having to move from one uh, commune to another, and her sister-in-law was with her, uh, and both of them had newborn babies, but her sister-in-law fell behind, and so she gave Guy Marianne her, her baby to take care of whilst she was trying to catch up. And one of the Khmer uh, you know, soldiers, cadres, uh, took this eight-week-old baby and just threw the baby into the jungle to die and told her you don't have any need for two babies. I mean, mean, this, this is the sort, I mean, you just had to wonder how could anyone be this heartless?
0: Well, I mean, as a, like a mid thirties, you know, aspiring lawyer, like how do you just like emotionally process these stories and and seeing these mass graves? Like, like, how do you, how, how do you deal with this?
1: Well, first of all, you cry. I I cried many times when I was in Cambodia, and I think if you uh, if you even think about it, thirty years later you you still cry about it. I mean, these are things that uh, well, they change your life. Uh, certainly changed my life. I knew from there on I had to devote the rest of my life to. Uh, fighting against genocide.
0: And so how did you, you then channel those those emotions and, and, and that decision to make sort of manifest your, your determination to, to fight against genocide?
1: When I came back to the United States, uh, to Yale Law School, um, I thought, you know, I'd be the happiest man on the face of the planet. We had just adopted our daughter there. The first Cambodian baby that the government ever allowed a foreign couple to adopt, Uh, she's here in this house with me today, Elizabeth Chantana Stanton, and she should have just filled my life with light. Instead, I was so depressed, and I finally, my wife said, you really need to go see a psychiatrist about this, because why should you be so depressed? And so I did. And the psychiatrist said to me, you know, those of us who study depression think that depression sometimes is caused by repressed anger. What are you angry about? And I said, I'm mad as hell that the Khmer Rouge should have gotten away with genocide. And so she then said to me, so what are you going to do about it? And I think that was one of the things that was the call for me. And you know, then I went to talk with some of the professors there at law school, and I had I had a plan. I knew that if, since the Khmer Rouge had been driven out of power, we could gather the evidence, and yet since the UN was still uh, seating them as the official representative of Cambodia in the UN, if a case were taken to the International Court of Justice, which at the time was the only court where you could go, uh it would be the Khmer Rouge would actually have to answer the charges. It was a unique opportunity and so we That's right. Well, I
0: should you should explain to, to people who are not so familiar with international law that, that the International Court of Justice is a court based in The Hague in which countries can bring cases against each other. That's right. Um, It's not a. And you're saying that because the Khmer Rouge is still titularly the um, head of government in Cambodia, even though they are at this point probably relegated to just the hinterlands in the country, there's still the legal prospect that you could bring a case against them. If that another country convinced perhaps another country to bring a case against Cambodia, that they would have to answer for Cambodia.
1: That's exactly right. That was that was the whole strategy, and. So I went around and talked to my international law professors, you know, Mars McDougall and uh, uh, Michael Reisman and to Burke Marshall, who's one of the great heroes of the civil rights movement, uh, explained my plan to them and uh, explained that. And they said, that's a very sound approach. Uh, And so uh, we formed the Cambodian Genocide Project to carry it out. I got David Hawk, uh, who had been the former executive director of Amnesty International USA, to help me. Uh, organized that uh, we went into Cambodia to uh, get permission from the government to carry it out, and over the next several years, we gathered in a mountain of evidence that could be taken to the International Court of Justice. What,
0: what sort of evidence but, are you talking about? If, 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 oh, like, like, what is like evidence to be used in a genocide trial?
1: Well, you know, direct uh, cases of. Uh, murder of people, uh, based on the kind of, uh, the, the, the kinds of criteria that you look for for genocide. For instance, are these people murdered because they're Cham Muslims? Well, that would be for a genocide trial. If you wanted a crime against humanity, uh, trial, of course, even political murders are considered, uh, crimes against humanity. But for a genocide trial, uh, you would, Essentially, charged that the Khmer Rouge had violated the Genocide Convention, and that means that they would have had to kill people on the basis of their nationality, their race, their uh, religion, or their ethnicity. And the Khmer Rouge did all of those things, but they also, of course, had mostly killed people for political reasons and economic reasons. Anyway, the point was to get a country to take. A case against Cambodia, represented by the Khmer Rouge, to the International Court of Justice proved to be impossible. We couldn't get a single country to do it. We were close with Australia and with Sweden, but they both got calls from our State Department in the U.S. saying not to do it.
0: Why? And What's the, like, the, the political reasoning behind that?
1: It was the time of the Cold War, and the uh, Soviet Union and Vietnam were backing the government that was in Phnom Penh. Uh, We were, on the other hand, backing a coalition that included the Khmer Rouge. We were actually voting to seat the Khmer Rouge in the Cambodian seat in the United Nations. And we did not want our foreign policy to be undermined by a trial of the Khmer Rouge leaders. I think it was a bankrupt foreign policy, but it was nevertheless our foreign policy at the time. And so the State Department was literally opposing a trial.
0: So any U.S. ally, the State Department would call and advise them against doing it.
1: That's right. Hmm. And so what we realized was the only way to do this was to change U.S. foreign policy. And so we formed a uh, coalition called the Campaign to Oppose the Return of the Khmer Rouge. Uh, ben Kiernan and I and Sally Benson and uh, Craig Etcheson, you know, formed this coalition, and we wrote a bill that Senator Robb introduced called the Cambodian Genocide Justice Act. And it was finally passed in 1994. Remember, this is around the time of the end of the Cold War. Uh, President Clinton signed it into law, and it required the State Department to set up an office of Cambodian genocide investigations, and it directly ordered the State Department to pursue trial of the Khmer Rouge leaders. In other words, it reversed American foreign policy. And it was overwhelmingly passed by both the House and the Senate, and signed by the president. So, you know that made it possible finally for us to create an, an international criminal tribunal to put the Khmer Rouge on trial, and so that then became our objective. Mm-hmm.
0: And 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 is that the sort of genesis of what's now called what is it the E Triple C?
1: Yes, right. It okay. is. It is the uh, extraordinary chambers in the courts of Cambodia. The C or the Khmer Rouge Tribunal. Um, and I was the person who wrote the uh, internal rules for that tribunal. Uh, that became my lifelong project, if you will. Um, I had also worked on other tribunals, you probably realize uh, from uh, my life history, uh, that the main one was the Rwandan Tribunal, where I had also uh, Written the UN resolutions that created that uh, tribunal uh, in 1994,
0: and this is the uh, International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, which is housed in, in Arusha, Tanzania. Right? That's correct. Yes, and yep. and, and and so you uh, so so y- um, did you sort of base uh, like the rules of procedure on uh, that that you wrote uh, that you helped to write for the ECCC on the uh, ICTR?
1: Yes, and also on the uh, by that time. Uh, the rules of the International um, Criminal Court, which had been written uh, over, the ni- over during the 1990s, had been agreed to uh, near the end of the 1990s. And when the International Criminal Court uh, went into effect in 2002, they were there for us to use as a as a base for the rules for the Cambodian Tribunal. But also, of course, these, this was a Cambodian court, so the rules had to be in harmony with Cambodian criminal procedure. So it was, it was quite a uh, job to, uh, if you will, make the hybrid that was necessary for the rules to work in Cambodia.
0: Um, and, and so what is that? Um, the, the ECCC uh, up to these days? I mean, I have to imagine that a lot of the perpetrators of this genocide are well into their 80s by now.
1: That's correct. And in fact, it, the, the uh, commemorative tribunal has only been able to try a few people. Uh, it was never intended to try, uh, you know, very many people. Um, it takes literally hundreds of thousands of people to carry out a genocide, and if you're going to try all those people, you're going to just create havoc that lasts for, for generations in the society. You can only really try the top people. And so we were able to try uh, the uh, main ideologue in the uh, Khmer Rouge, Q. Sampan. And we were able to try one of the people who was most responsible for the mass murders, Juan Chea. And uh, we were able to put on trial uh, a couple of other people, but uh, one of them died during the time that the tribunal was in session. Uh, his wife was declared to not be uh, fit for trial. Uh, and of course, Paul Pot uh, was dead by the time the tribunal had uh, been put into effect. So the, the the main thing that the tribunal has been able to do is convict the people it has tried for crimes against humanity, and it is currently now trying them for genocide because they divided the trials realizing that most of the crimes they committed were crimes against humanity uh, because they were uh, Khmer people killing other Khmer people uh, who had the same religion and, and ethnic group and so forth. But the genocide trials that focused on their murder, mass murder of the Cham Muslims and of the Vietnamese are ongoing right now. Um, so how did you
0: come to start Genocide Watch?
1: After I uh, served in the State Department and after the United States. What, what position
0: did you serve in the State Department?
1: Oh, I uh, was in the State Department uh, in the International Organization's Political Affairs Bureau. Uh, and I was responsible for drafting U.N. resolutions uh, and for um, coordinating our policy at the United Nations Security Council on Africa. And that is how I got involved in uh, the Rwandan Tribunal, in creating the Burundi Commission of Inquiry. The uh, I wrote the resolution that created the Central African Arms Flow Commission. Well, and h- so how did forth.
0: you get that, that job at the State Department? Were you a political appointee? Uh, no, nope,
1: no. Actually, I joined at the bottom. I took the state. I took the foreign service exam, realizing somebody had to get inside the department if we were going to push through the uh, uh, Cambodian Genocide Justice Act. And so I joined for that reason. Took the foreign service exam, was I accepted. Went out, did my consular duty in Bangkok. But then, while I was in Bangkok, uh, the, the, the uh, director general of the foreign service, Genta Hawkins Holmes, came out for a consular conference, and it was during the, gen- the it was during the Rwandan genocide. And we sat next to her, each other uh, during a dinner. Floated down the Chow Pryor River. And we began to talk about genocide because they were running genocide was underway. And she finally looked at me and she said, you are an expert on genocide. We want you back in Washington now. And she had the power to do that. And so she ordered me back to Washington and she jumped me over, oh, three or four grades in the Foreign Service and put me, you know, from a position as a junior officer out in of Bangkok, stamping visas, into a policy-making position uh, in the International Organizations Bureau in the State Department, it was highly unusual. I mean, I yes. feel incredibly, incredibly lucky. Well, it was all because
0: of that conference, right? You're, you're sitting next to each other, and, and that's that's sort of very serendipitous.
1: It was. And who knows? Maybe it was more than serendipity. No. Maybe. <laughs> and and so, you know, uh there we were, and I was prepared for that job. I mean, I had the right training for it.
0: Well, you also must have been a lot older uh, than your other uh Foreign Service entry-level officers, and you already have, like, a law degree from Yale.
1: That's right, and I had been a law professor at Washington and Lee Law mm-hmm. School also, and uh had a Ph.D. in anthropology from the uh, University of Chicago, and also had a Harvard Divinity School degree. I mean, I had gone to school a heck of a long time. I'm sure longer than my wife was uh, really uh, wanting me to go. In fact, she told me at our law school uh, graduation that I had to go to that graduation because I wasn't going to go to medical school next. <laughs> but anyway. So, so you're in the
0: State Department in 1994 in yes. the wake of the Rwanda genocide. Right. Um, and what I, I guess then. So what were you tasked uh, to do?
1: Well, as soon as I arrived back, uh, which was July fourteenth, nineteen ninety four, I'll never forget it. Um, I was sent up to a a big meeting up in the t- top floor of the State Department with television, you know, coverage from people all over the government, uh, from the National Security Council, from uh, you know the Pentagon, and all around. And there we were, and we were discussing what France was just doing, which was to send in uh a operation Tur- turquoise as they called it uh it was a effort by france to essentially seal off the western part of rwanda that was what was discussed at that but the fir- the next that very same day they brought me down to the legal office and said we would like to send you out with the un commission of inquiry to rwanda uh, to look at the genocide. And uh, Crystal Nix, who was the uh, person who asked me to do this, uh, said, how would you like to go to Rwanda? And I said, oh, my goodness. I had actually lived in Rwanda in 88 and 89. So I exact- I did know where I was going to be going, but I also knew this was going to be after a genocide. Well, I went in with that commission of inquiry and then helped re- write that report. And the report recommended that we set up the Rwandan tribunal when, when you uh,
0: went into to Rwanda with, you know, the, a mandate of, you know, f- looking at, at the crimes that were committed, determining if it was a genocide. I mean, what, what did you see and, and how similar or different was it from what you had seen, you know, 10 years earlier, 15 years earlier in, in Cambodia?
1: Well, it was even worse because in Rwanda, the bodies hadn't been buried. Uh, there were still bodies all over the churchyards. Uh, there were bodies in the streets. I mean, there was... You, the stench of death was everywhere in Rwanda. This was a country that was totally in uh, post-traumatic stress. Everyone was. Uh, it was also a country where many of the population had fled because when the uh, Rwandan Patriotic Front Army finally won the war against the uh, genocidal government uh, a lot of the people in that government fled and and they they made all the people who supported them flee with them so there were huge refugee camps that had formed uh, on the borders with uh, what was then zaire, zaire it's now called the congo but uh, so we there we were in a country that was just completely destroyed uh, there were i think five judges in the entire country who were still alive. Uh, There were hardly any lawyers. This was a country that had basically the whole society been torn apart. And so we were then asked, you know, what are we going to do about uh, justice in this case? That was why our mandate of the Commission of Inquiry. And we concluded, well, we have created a tribunal for Yugoslavia. This is certainly at least as bad as that. We should create another one, and we should create it in Africa, because we can't do it in the Hague here. This has to be close to where this crime occurred.
0: You know, witnessing, uh, again, like another genocide uh, up close, did you have a similar sort of emotional uh, reaction and and response as you did in in Cambodia, that sort of repressed anger that that you referenced earlier?
1: Oh, no question at all. Uh, I certainly did. And you know, another thing I would say is that I came back with, uh, what is now called PTSD. I mean, you cannot see this kind of thing in your life without being traumatized by it.
0: How, how does that, how did that, uh, PTSD manifest itself?
1: Oh, um, dreams in which you, you know, see skulls or and, and mass graves and bodies. And I mean, things like that, uh, times of Irritability of of uh, uh, sort of un uh, unexplained um, rage uh, things of that sort. It's a well known uh, phenomenon now. They've seen it now. They finally understood it. Uh, they're beginning to figure out how to treat it. How did
0: you like like manage it and and treat it or not? Well,
1: again, I. Uh, found a good psychiatrist. That was one thing. But I also, um, my faith by that time had really deepened. And I um, I tell people, how do you do this? When people ask me, how do you do this thing for 35 years? I say, well, there's two reasons. I have a good psychiatrist and I sing in the church choir. Mm-hmm. And it- that is true. I mean, seriously, it is, you. if you have the view that genocide isn't everything, that in fact human beings are, are can create the incredible splendor of, of uh, Mozart or of mm-hmm. uh, Beethoven or some of the other great composers, uh, you simply realize that it isn't all evil, and in fact that other things can triumph over that evil.
0: So witnessing genocide after genocide did not sort of shake your faith in that, you know, there is a benevolent God.
1: Oh, you know, my view on that is um, that—and here's where I really agree with Rabbi Uh, Kushner—I think that the the answer to this, you know, terrible problem that many people consider sort of their, you know, the three strikes against faith is— that God has given us free will, and that free will is the reason for genocide. God didn't do that. Uh, now, the benevolent God, I do believe in, because I I I know that God can be experienced in love. And for me, in fact, my theology um, is that love is God's force personally expressed, and justice is God's force socially expressed. And if you really believe those two things, I think it will guide you through so much. And, you know, it doesn't answer all of the problems because you're still going to always have hard times. And we have in our lives. You know, not everything has been perfect at all for me. Uh, and I've had to face uh, you know the PTSD again and again. Actually, going back into these settings, and but I know now that every time I go to one of those places, um, first of all, I better go see my psychiatrist again. But also, I better uh, do some deep reflection about you know what, and and uh, I'm a I'm a member of a very wonderfully supportive men's Bible study group too in our church here.
0: Um, how how long did you spend in, in the State Department in, in the nineties? Did you finish out the, the the Clinton administration? Did you stick around to the, to the next presidency?
1: I just about finished out the Clinton administration. I left in uh, early nineteen ninety nine. You know the uh, I could see what was coming, and I realized that uh, I probably wouldn't necessarily agree with. The views that had been expressed about the International Criminal Court by the incoming president. And I also knew that um, it was also time to create an international mass movement to deal with genocide. I'd learned from the experience I'd had that we couldn't count on governments to really uh, defeat this problem. We needed governments, of course, and they could really do so much of the good that needed to be done. But a mass movement really was needed to put pressure on the governments to do the acts that they need.
0: It seems to me that the mass movement they described really didn't form uh, until the Darfur genocide, uh, right? And, and sort of almost in the wake of Samantha Power's uh, book, which seemed to galvanize a, a sort of a young generation of um, incipient anti-genocide activists um, to – come to a realization that, you know, this is a, a sort of enduring feature of the international uh, system that ought to be, you know, confronted.
1: I think that's right. And, you know, I met Samantha when she was actually doing the research for that book. We met first out in Arusha after we'd started the uh, run a tribunal. And she invited me out to dinner. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that was uh, kind of wonderful, actually. Uh, we had dinner, uh, you know, Uh, under the moonlight one night and talked for hours, but she was, I could already tell this was a woman who had the right name. I mean, power is the right name for this woman, Uh, a remarkable woman. And uh, she did, through that electrifying book of hers, uh, make it clear that this was a human problem that had been around forever, and we still hadn't solved it. And I think that it was that and I think it was also Darfur and the Save Darfur movement, and we were part of that, and many other uh, now, uh, many other genocides that have occurred since uh, even since then, as you know, they're still going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that so doesn't
0: uh, that I, I suppose like almost represent like a, a, a I suppose a, a failure of the movement. Have you had you had uh, oh, the Darfur genocide. You know there you know there is the mass murder in Sri Lanka. There's the Yazidi uh, situation that we talked about earlier. It seems that uh, the movement perhaps isn't as as um, robust as one might think.
1: I think it is. Uh, you're right. I, it's it's a failure of the movement to to win yet. I mean I don't think we should give up by any means. Uh, you know, we, I think there are a lot of reasons why um, we still haven't won. Uh, we don't have the international institutions yet that we need. Um, we have some, though. I mean, for instance, in 2000, I wrote a, a proposal that the United Nations should create an office uh, uh, for a special advisor on the prevention of genocide. And we lobbied uh, at the top levels of the United Nations to get that office created, and Kofi Annan created it. And so now that office is, you know, really um, a force in the United Nations. Mm-hmm. So that's progress. And you make these you make these steps one by one, you know, until you eventually can say that you've actually uh, achieved the prevention of a genocide. And I, I would say that we have actually had some cases— in which uh, genocide has been stopped. Kosovo is perhaps the best example. Uh, That was a case in which when David Sheffer called it genocide, even though he was criticized for calling it genocide when, as they said, quote, only 10,000 people had been Mm -hmm. killed, uh, we began the bombing of Belgrade and Uh, the Serbs, uh, the Serbs surrendered and, uh, the, the Kosovar Albanians were rescued. And so Kosovo is now a country that still has tensions, but it is a country, uh, that has just won its first Olympic gold medal. And it is a country in which my own son is a Peace Corps volunteer right now.
0: Um, well, Greg, we are just about out of time. Uh, anything else you want to you plug? What are you working on these days? What to look out for in the future?
1: Well, the Alliance Against Genocide, which we founded at the same time as Genocide Watch in 1999, um, now has 65 uh, members, including some very big organizations like the International Crisis Group, uh, Minority Rights Group, uh, the Aegis Trust, and so forth, And many other organizations, of course, are far more aware of this problem of genocide and are working on it. The press also is. So I think we actually have made a lot of progress uh, in the movement, in the anti-genocide movement. It's just that um, we must not give up. It's in many ways, I think, for this century, the equivalent of the anti-slavery movement. And I do believe we will win.
0: Uh, well, Greg, thank you so much uh, for your time. And, and from, from your mouth to God's ears, right?
1: <laughs> well, thank you very much. Uh, and this is me in
0: 2019 uh, again. And re-listening to that, yeah, I just had no idea where that conversation was going to go. Still powerful to this day. As I mentioned at the outset, this is a good distillation of the kinds of episodes that I am publishing uh, for premium subscribers, I've put most of these long-form conversations in which people who have led interesting careers in foreign policy, uh, I've, I've put those behind a, a paywall now uh, in an effort to try to make this podcast a more sustainable enterprise. So if you are interested in helping the podcast and also unlocking some amazing conversations much like the one you just heard please do become a premium subscriber again go to patreon.com slash global dispatches thank you there are other ways to do it. you can go to global dispatches as well and i'll mail you a sticker if you become a premium subscriber i have uh, several global dispatches podcast stickers uh, that i would love to mail you all right we'll see you next time thank you and uh, get ready for september bye